and now it is my honor to introduce someone I have greatly uh, enjoyed getting to know in my time with the council in the first few months, the council's new chairman of the board, Dave Meyer. In addition to his council activities, Dave is a partner in the Dallas office of Grant Thornton. He has extensive experience with corporate and partnership tax matters, accounting methods, and mergers and acquisitions. Prior to joining Grant Thornton, Dave was the Price Waterhouse Coopers and Arthur and, and was with Price Waterhouse Coopers and Arthur Anderson, serving public and private clients. You can see why he he was the council's treasurer on our board prior to being nominated prior to being nominated and appointed as our new chairman. Dave is also a cyclist, and I look forward to biking with him and Jim Falk sometime soon. Dave, thank you for your years of dedication to the council and truly it's been really wonderful getting to know you uh, in these last uh, few months. I've really enjoyed it. So thanks. Well, thank you very much, Liz. I am really proud to represent the council as chair and look forward to the many wonderful things that we will accomplish in these next two years. And now it is my privilege and honor to introduce both our guest speaker and our moderator. In 2009, we hosted the 26th Secretary of Defense and retired General Jim Mathis for his new book, Call Sign Chaos. In his conversation then, he discussed the importance of educating our children. And so we knew if he was willing that he would be the perfect keynote speaker for our event this evening. We are grateful to you, General Mathis, for agreeing to be part of this program. When it comes to introducing someone such as General Mathis, I know I don't need to read a lengthy list of accomplishments throughout his 44-year career as an infantry Marine, but I will anyway. General Mathis is a retired U.S. Marine Corps four-star general who served as Secretary of Defense from January 2017 to January 2019. During his four decades in the Marine Corps, he commanded forces in the Persian Gulf, Afghanistan, and Iraq wars. From 2007 to 2010, he commanded the U.S. Joint Forces Command and concurrently served as NATO's Supreme Allied Commander Transformation. He was commander of U.S. Central Command from 2010 to 2013 until he retired from the military. I know you must hear this all the time, sir, but uh, thank you very much for your service to our nation. We are a much safer country thanks to people like you. Moderating tonight's conversation is a good friend of mine, having worked with him for many years at the council, President Emeritus Jim Falk. Jim recently retired from the council after serving more than 20 years as our president and CEO. Jim, we thank you again for your leadership and we look forward to tonight's conversation. Great, thank you so much, Dave. And thanks to everybody who's been supporting tonight's program. Maria, congratulations. And General Mattis, great to see you again. I remember so well when you were here and signing the book. And before we start, I just wanna thank you again and, and recall about how, I think you were supposed to leave Dallas Baptist University about 8.30 and you left about 10.30 because you made sure that you signed every book and talked to everyone. And I think that just shows the type of man you are and why you had such a remarkable career. So thanks for being with us this evening. Well, thank you, uh, Jim. Thanks all of you there at the World Affairs Council. I 
I don't often uh, get invited back to polite company after some of my public statements. So uh, trust Texas to come through and uh, just thank uh, Greenberg Krarig and uh, Pepsi and all of you for putting this together. Jim, I'm really humbled uh, to add my respects to Maria, uh, you know, for her devotion and passion to the next generation. Uh, she's a role model of a leader and I'm, I'm humbled to be here on this occasion. But, uh, but I get thanked for my service. Just remember, it's mostly the privates and sergeants who earned me my reputation. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, it was a pure coincidence, and I, I hope it really was that Maria was selected after you were asked and kindly accepted our invitation. But it really is just wonderful that, that you've known her for years. And certainly, as you affectionately call that junior officer, General Jim Williams. So uh, that's, it's all worked out well. You know, because it is the Educator of the Year event, Let's start by asking you to tell us about how education affected you and, and can you identify one or two people either in your, in your mm -hmm. academic background or in the military that really served as, as mentors? Sure, Jim. And uh, I mean, really it all starts at home, right? I mean, my mom and dad had books, encouraged me to read. Uh, so that was, that was big, but I also grew up in a dusty little town on the banks of the Columbia. Uh, and it's a town that was built, frankly, uh, to support the Manhattan Project in World War II. So there was the, the sense of history in the town. Uh, we uh, also, were, with the uh, furthest upstream on the Columbia, where Lewis and Clark Expedition made a camp. And we, uh, we have a lot of Native Americans who live in the, in the area, the Yakima Nation, Umatillas, this sort of thing. <clears throat> and so I think uh, I was well-tuned for when Mrs. Edwards, one of my junior high school teachers, uh, put a history book in our hands that uh, really brought home the unifying aspects of the American dream with all of its good, all of its bad, all of its honesty, but all of its promise, most of all, all of its promise. Uh, and then of course I got into the Marines and wouldn't you know it, uh, all Marines have to read six books when you join. <clears throat> and it's not Burger King. You don't get to do it your way. You really got to read them. Uh, and then every time you get promoted, uh, you get a new reading list. And most of that is history. Uh, so it was just constant education from the time I grew up in this dusty little town all the way through. Uh, even when you make general, they hand you another stack of 20 books and say, start reading, start over again. What are some of the books that are on the list? Uh, we have, the ones in the Marine Corps are books that have to do with what you can learn uh, from history. Um, General uh, Wavell's uh, Defeat into Victory, for example, Field Marshal Slim, as he's known, uh, Defeat into Victory is one. Uh, General Grant's memoirs, his personal memoirs. Uh, but also there are books that go into the human element, that talk about the human beings, the the human factors of war and a reminder as you read through that every battlefield in this world is also a humanitarian field. And you start picking up, there's a timeless wisdom, <clears throat> a timeless wisdom that you can draw on because life is just too short to think you're gonna learn it all by experience. It's just too short, especially if you're gonna be a leader. General, you and I are not gonna talk politics tonight, but I think we both agree that January 6th was a tough pill to swallow and to watch. And you often speak about the American experiment. 
what does it mean to you and why does it still need to be nurtured? Well, we can't take the American experiment for granted, Jim. <clears throat> we can't say, well, we were born here, so obviously it's always been a democracy. It will always be a democracy and we'll be free. Uh, I'm reminded of the greatest generation coming home from World War II. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Maria just mentioned, she said, you know, it's a globalized world. It's globalized, not out of a policy. It's not a policy, it's a reality. And the greatest generation comes home having sadly learned that after how many tens of millions were dead? We don't even know, 50, 60, 70 million dead. And they said, like it or not, we're part of this. And we're going to have to look at our country now the same way that like it or not, we're part of it. And we're going to have to roll up our sleeves if we don't want more sad days like we had on January 6th. Roll up our sleeves, learn to compromise. Remember, we set this government up so it cannot function unless there is compromise. The founding fathers did that on purpose. <clears throat> so what it does, it reignites in me the need to really make sure that people like Maria are getting support, that we're teaching the next generation the civics lessons, the history lessons, and finding common ground. I, I go around now, Jim, and I listen to history classes and everything from middle schools through high schools through undergrads. I engage with grad students in international relations. I'm not sure the way American history is taught today, Jim, that I would have much affection for our country. I think we have to get back. I don't mind teaching the good and the bad, but we have to have the unifying themes too. And just how many people of all backgrounds have worked hard to build this country. But you're not the first to say what you've just said in those last 30 seconds, but how do we get there? I mean, where's the obstacle? Well, I think part of the obstacle is, Jim, that under the amplification of social media, of 24-hour news broadcasts, that we stay stuck in election politics. <clears throat> it used to be you went through an election, your guy won or lost, and then you all got to work and you fought it out, but you governed the country. Remember, elections necessarily take division. I say, I'm smart. I say, Jim Falk, he's dumb. Vote for me. Okay, it's not always real nice. <clears throat> Welcome to democracy. But when it's over and done with, we used to bury the hatchet. For example, conservative Senator Vandenberg of Michigan, 1949, is asked, how can you work with that left-wing President Truman on, on this stuff for the Marshall Plan and for NATO? And he said, stop right there. He said, politics stops at the water's edge. We all work together. Now, that was a conservative Republican and a, a left of center president, and they could work together. We're going to have to get out of this constant election cycle where we never stop and start recognizing when the election's over, that governor or that president, whoever it is, is everybody's governor or president. <clears throat> and if we decide we're going to embrace our hatreds and challenge other people's patriotism, because we've got disagreements with them on some policy issues, our enemies are going to be clapping as they watch America destroy itself. The one thing that worried Abraham Lincoln, who guided us through a war where we actually killed each other, was that we would not survive if we didn't come back together. We, our country would not survive. We'd better remember that. We owe that survival to the next generation. 
So when Dave Meyer kindly introduced me, he said I'd been with the council for over 20 years. I think over time, that's gonna become much longer. It was just short of 20 years, but over this almost 20 years, I've heard so many of our guest speakers talk about their desire to see a, not, not another draft, but some type of service obligation. Where do you stand on that? You know, it's an interesting question, Jim, because I was talking to some Canadian officers years ago when I was on active duty, and they explained to me one of the few places where French-speaking boys and English-speaking boys actually got to know each other was in the French Armed Forces. And I started thinking about what it does to bring people together in the Armed Forces. Now, we don't need and we probably cannot use a military so large that a draft into the Armed Forces would be fair. So I went and talked to Latter-day Saints, Mormons, about how did they get it so that their young men and now their young women, as a matter of course, as a matter of expectation, go off on two years of mission uh, when they're very, very young before they started families. How do, how do the Native American tribes keep their languages alive and their traditions alive? And it's interesting that the power of expectation uh, is very, very powerful if adults set the example. If adults can bury hatchets and stop using scorching rhetoric to identify anyone else who's out there that doesn't agree with them. So I think what we need to do is look at where national service becomes an expectation, where a year abroad, as, as the British used to call it for their students back uh, 80 years ago, instead it would be a year where somewhere between the time you're 18 and you're 25, every boy and girl in America does something for their community, for the military, for the Peace Corps, you know, does something for volunteers in service to America, helps Maria as a student uh, teacher assistant. Uh, our teachers can always use that kind of help. But we'd better go back to saying we're going to look out for our sisters and brothers. And not it's just not about how many toys can you have accumulated by the time you're 45. Because if that's all the more you're interested in doing, well, just get ready to pay a shrink a whole lot of money because you're going to wonder what you did with your life if you're not helping one another. You know, I'm holding in my hand the summary of the National Defense Strategy of the United States of America, which has you as its author. It was written in 2018. And since we have so many students on the call uh, in our audience, just summarize very quickly what this document is, and then I have some specific questions about what you wrote. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. First, let me just say to all the young people there, no matter what you've seen as examples right now, no matter what you see on the television station that someone seems to play a lot in your house or in, in your group, um, you, if, if a president of the United States, Republican or Democrat, male or female, asks you to serve, 
then it's not just a duty, it's a res and responsibility. It's also a privilege to serve. So when I was asked to go into this, I've never taken part in political uh, campaigns. I don't think retired generals should do anything publicly, frankly. But if remember, you shift from elections to governing, if you're asked to serve, you owe it to the country, you owe it to your fellow citizens, go in and give it your best shot. I got in and I found we did not have a national defense strategy. Now, I guarantee you that your school district has a strategy to absorb additional students who are coming into the area or, or to expand certain programs. Every corporation, Pepsi, that is, that is run, that one of our sponsors, I guarantee you they have a corporate strategy. So I was disappointed and went to work. I wrote the strategy. I took it to every Republican and Democrat on Capitol Hill that was willing to, wanted to sit down and talk with me. I took it to our allies from the Pacific to uh, Europe, to NATO, and I laid it out for them. And then I got their inputs where I could. And <clears throat> what I was doing was putting together a strategy using the George Washington model of leadership. Listen, learn, help, and then lead with the strategy. I listened to other people. I was willing to be persuaded if they had good ideas. I learned their perspectives, which oftentimes broadened my own. I then helped them to understand how I could put that in or I couldn't put it in and why not. And then I wrote the strategy. It has three lines of effort because when you're running the biggest corporation in the world, my fine young folks, you can't get down into a thousand different things that you're gonna to try to micromanage. I wanted the military to be more lethal. I wanted us to broaden the number of allies we have in the world and deepen the trust with all of them. And I wanted to reform the business practices so I could look your mothers and fathers in the eye and say, I'm not wasting your money. And that basically guided our strategy going forward. And in the document you wrote, and I quote, our competitive military advantage has been eroding. What is the state of America's preparedness today? Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of current readiness, uh, certainly thanks to the Congress's uh, budgets over the last four years, uh, we are more ready with our current forces. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the previous 10 years had seen very haphazard funding without a strategy. Remember, we did not have a strategy for 10 years. So this is not a slam on any one political party. That's more than one party had been in office before I got there. And so what I had to do is put together a strategy that would earn the trust of the Senate and the House of Representatives. And remember that trust is the coin of the realm in any position of leadership. Trust, you have to gain it. So once we got that money, we were able to take the forces we had and get them more ready. They are ready to fight today. No doubt about it. The problem was for 10 years, the haphazard funding meant we had very, uh, I would call them immature programs, immature in the sense of continuity to look to the future readiness. And there we've got a challenge. And there we're going to need the help of the Congress as we adapt to this changing world. The current forces are ready. The future forces, you have to look when you're a leader not to the person who replaces you, look to the person who replaces the person who, who comes after you, the person after next, in other words. You have to look that far down the road 
because you owe that to them when you're in these positions. There, we're not doing enough. General, I think that's startling that you say that for over 10 years, we did not have a strategy. Mm -hmm. I know you don't like to point fingers, but someone has to be accountable for that. Is that an executive branch error or is that the military, Congress? Well, you could, uh, you could line up a lot of people who contributed. Here's the challenge with answering your question, Jim. After our nasty argument with King George III, we intentionally set up a government that required everyone to work together, that they would compete for authority, for power. The executive, the president, would have to compete with the Congress, and the Supreme Court would review what they were both doing and make certain it stayed within the Constitution. And by the way, just to really make it difficult, we made it a bicameral legislature, which meant you had both the House of Representatives and Senators, and all of them have to agree. Due to uh, poor definition of what the problems were facing us over those previous 10 years, we passed something <clears throat> that basically said we can uh, force reductions. And it was under a thing called sequester. It was the budget agreement. And it was made so bad that we believed that the Congress would never allow it to happen. In other words, it was so dumb that it would force the Congress to make decisions on the budget. Unfortunately, when you take good people, and most of the people in Washington are very good people, and bad processes, bad processes win nine out of 10. This is why you have to study and work and modify processes all the time, even though at times it's the most boring and maddening thing in the world. But the processes were set up basically, Jim, to fail. We just didn't believe we'd be so dumb to take that road. And unfortunately, because we couldn't get together and compromise, remember that word, that the founding fathers forced us to operate by compromise, we ended up in that position. Well, let's bring in a question from Tarek Rajev. And he asks, why do we need to spend more money on the military than the next top six countries combined? Is that what we call hard diplomacy? And I'd add to that, are we seeing an over-militarization, at least in the past few administrations, uh, over diplomacy? Yeah, I, first, uh, let me answer the second question uh, first. Uh, I go to Washington, D.C. to go in front of the Senate for to be the Secretary of Defense, a job I never asked for, never sought out. Uh, and I hear that uh, a Texan just came into town for the same reason, he's going to be the Secretary of State, a man by the name of Rex Tillerson. So I called around to a couple hotels and I found where Rex was. And I said, I'm batching it here in town. How about if we go have dinner together? December 28th, we sit down together. Nobody in the restaurant but us and about 10 waiters because there's nobody else there. And we're just talking about things. And one of the di discussion points I brought up as we got to know each other was I said, I think we've militarized, over-militarized our foreign policy. I want to tell you what the military can do, what it can't do. I'll give you the military factors, but let's you and I meet every week and you're in the driver's seat on foreign policy. And we'll walk into the White House always linked at the hip. We'll, the White House will never have to sort anything out between me and, this, and State Department. And he just reached over in that Texas way and shook my hand. And at that point, knowing he's from Texas, I knew I could take it to the bank. And that's the way we did it. So 
We, oh, I think we've militarized foreign policy. It goes back to a failure of education. Uh, it goes back to the fall of the Berlin Wall, really, where people had short-term policies that were not integrated, I think, into a longer-term strategy. Part of the reason is our universities, by and large, do not teach enough uh, military history and diplomatic history. So we now rely on either regime change or economic sanctions. So there's where we end. That's how we ended up in a, in that position where we'd militarized, over-militarized our foreign policy and what we did to try to get out of it. And that that would take a long time to explain the specific things we did. Going to the the money piece of it, the the issue really comes down to America's role in the world. Now, reality is a very bad opponent. You generally you don't want to fight reality. The democracies right now are under pressure by authoritarian states. That's, that's a reality. Whether it be Putin or President Xi in China, Kim in uh, North Korea, the clerics there in, uh, in Tehran, they think the democracies are on the back foot, that they have a better idea. You shouldn't have to have governments of the people, by the people, for the people. I'd like to tell you that we don't need those budgets. I'd like to tell you that, uh, that we can defend this country, this experiment you and I call America without it. But the fact is the other democracies are coming on. The, the uh, contributions to defense across the European democracies going up. Uh, the reality is we face these threats. So do we need that money? I think we can always save some money uh, that's why I had a line of one third of my lines of effort were exactly that, to try to see where we could save money, but also by working more with our allies, as Maria brought up in a globalized world, you start reducing the demand on our people. In other words, stick with your allies, and maybe we can find a way to save money, but America can afford survival too. And right now we are in a difficult spot and if you watch what happened, for example, after 9-11 and all those countries that came to our aid, three of those countries, by the way, have lost more boys per capita in the fighting in Afghanistan after we were attacked than we've lost. Three of those countries have lost more. So believe me, allies are also carrying a lot of the load here. I could go on at some length there, but don't think it's only on America to do this. It's not the case. We, we only have about 15 more minutes and a, a, a lot to cover, and I want to be sure that we get some questions in. We have a few, but before I read a question, I want you to know that this came from Sergeant uh, Ed Shulman. One of our service dogs are named after General Mattis, so I think, uh, since I love dogs, I think that's a, that's a high compliment. Indeed, it is. It, uh, that shows I finally arrived. I got a dog named after me. I'm so I'm glad you were talking about alliances because uh, you, you have been quoted saying that's really the back, backbone for global security and an area where alliances played such a critical role is Afghanistan and the president has a tough decision. Uh, a few weeks ago we had Ann Patterson and Ryan Crocker together and they had very different viewpoints on what we should do in Afghanistan with Ambassador Crocker hoping we would keep a presence and Ambassador Patterson not quite as forceful on that. Where do you stand? Well, I think first, uh, we have to remember why we're there. I mean, do, do those of us with my color hair remember 
the day after 9-11 when Dallas Fort Worth Airport was shut down. Not one airplane was taken off and going in the sky, not one. So we have to remember why we are there. And the fastest way to end a war is to lose it. Just walk out, lose it. Uh, I think what we have to look at here is what can the allies do? And remember that when we got attacked, it grew to 49 allied nations alongside us, the largest wartime coalition in modern history. So it wasn't just us, they rallied to us because we led the way in. Now we have to look at how do we come out of there without worsening the situation? What are our interests? For example, there are more than 70 nations willing to contribute funds for schools, public health, uh, roads, and that sort of thing in Afghanistan. There are 30 some nations that have troops there. And right now, even though it was America that was attacked that started that war there, that we were attacked by people who had planned and organized and orchestrated that attack and killed over 3,000 people on our soil, innocent citizens from 91 countries. And now we have these allies still there today, and there are three times as many allied troops on the ground as there are American, which shows they're willing to stick with us. You wanna give up on allies like that as a last resort. So I think what we do, we make it very clear to the Taliban, the same thing we've made clear for over 15 years to them. 20 years. If you break with Al Qaeda, the people who attacked us, as long as you don't go murdering people, girls for going to school and that sort of thing, we'll let you settle it Afghan to Afghan. But we are not going to pull out and find our country attacked again and thousands more killed from there. And it's a very tough job for the president to figure this out. But again, how do you deal with it? Three words, allies, allies, allies. You keep together with like-minded nations. Back over to you, Jim. What level of troops would you recommend? Is that an unfair question to ask you? Well, you, you, need to, you need to look at what needs to be done. Let's put it in context. I, someone I think was saying there's 2,500 there. I'm, I'm just repeating now what I read in the news, 2,500 US troops. In New York City, there's over 40,000 uh, metropolitan and transit police. I'll just leave it there. Okay. Um, let's talk about China. Uh, in, in this document, the National Defense Strategy in 2018, you described China as a strategic competitor. More recently, I watched a speech that you gave at the uh, Jackson Institute at Yale University, and you said that the United States and China are on a collision course. What do we do about China? Yeah, you know, Ambassador Frank Wisner was talking about this recently, and he's one of our best diplomats. He's been around. There's nothing new under the sun. He's a constantly learning person. And he said, we're going to have to compete with China. We're okay with competing with China. I think we better start working more together as a team here in America if we're going to. But we can compete with anyone. We're free people, free uh, men and women. Uh, we're going to have to cooperate with them where we can, maybe on climate change, maybe on on pandemics, maybe on North Korea missiles, you know, that sort of thing. <clears throat> We're going to have to confront them where we must. For example, when they decide to ignore an international tribunal that says their nine dash line giving them full possession of the South China Sea is a fiction. That's an international tribunal. That's not Americans saying that. 
That's an international tribunal that they signed up to go along with, and they are now ignoring. And when you look at what China's doing in COVID, the concealment and the theft of intellectual property, <clears throat> the denial, even spreading lies, when you look at the cyber and economic attacks on, uh, on Australia, uh, what they're doing to the Uyghurs, uh, I can go on, Hong Kong, I can go on, I can go on. Uh, I think what we have to do is we have to open like the Reagan and uh, Secretary George Schultz uh, team did back in the Reagan administration we, with Russia. We need to open a strategic dialogue because we are going to have to find how do we manage our differences when two nuclear armed superpowers step on each other's toes, as we certainly will at times. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to learn how to do this. And I was talking to my counterpart one night in the woods of Virginia at Mount Vernon. And I asked him, you know, do you understand how the hardworking Chinese people benefited from the international system that was set up after World War II? And he stopped and looked at me and said, yes, and we know we owe America most for it. So I know we can have these kind of talks. I said, well, then we better figure out how we're going to manage our differences so we don't do what Europe did twice in the 20th century and set the world on fire. <clears throat> so we were upset, but you know, uh, you know that, that we're going to have to have a sustained, strategic, philosophical dialogue with the Chinese leaders. Sustained means every three months, we go to Beijing, three months later, they come to Washington. And we keep going with the same people, working out, what can we work together on? Where can we cooperate? Where are we not gonna agree to, talk, to work on together? You know, we're going to have to get this going because we're living on the same planet with them. So uh, I don't have a name for this question, but it's coming from uh, 667. Um, and he or she asks, are we spending too much money on arms and not enough on updating our AI uh, technology? And the same questioner asks, and I think it sort of follows, um, what about this gray zone, this, this hacking? Uh, solar winds, for example, recently from Russia. Uh, are we devoting enough resources to protecting our country from this type of aggression? You know, the, when I was uh, answering a previous question, I noted that, yeah, our current weapons, our ships, our airplanes, they're, they're probably about as ready as they need to be to be a deterrent to anybody who wants to cause mischief. Um, but what we didn't do during those years was remember, we didn't, we weren't looking toward future readiness and AI is front and center on this. So we are now playing catch up uh, as we try to uh, try to catch up on the time lost. And those programs are underway. When I got there, we, I recognized whether it be AI or hypersonics and some other high tech things, I needed someone who really knew this stuff. So I brought in the former uh, director of NASA uh, and he came in and for, three years, he was running these programs, three and a half years, as he was trying to get the research and development funds to do exactly what your question is asking here. But as far as the gray zone goes, <clears throat> I think the way to look at it is right now in Dallas, we're not worried about the Chinese Air Force bombing the city. And we're not concerned with the Russian Navy sailing up the uh, Rio Grande River. But we're very concerned right now with cyber attacks and all. And I think we need an early warning system. I think the government needs to do it. I, there is not enough trust in the country right now to force this, but I think 
we need to have NSA uh, and Cybercom put in some kind of protected domain that small business owners, families, anybody could, if they wanted to, come inside it and it would be more heavily protected. Uh, but we couldn't force it right now. There's people would think the government would be stealing the information and all of it. So, you know, it's going to have to be volunteer. Uh, but I think, too, you cannot simply play defense. And we are going to have to look when we catch somebody, first of all, name and shame them. Tell the world what they're doing, who's doing it. And then number two, you hold them accountable. How do you do it? Three words. Allies, allies, allies. Get a lot of people to use economic penalties, to use uh, diplomatic isolation, all sorts of things that people say, I'm not going to let that happen from my country. We're just not going to do it. The cost is unbearable. President Biden and his top lieutenants have all endorsed really the phrase, America is back. Are they taking all the right steps? And are there some that perhaps they have not taken that you might recommend? Well, they have to play the ball where it lies, I think, Jim. And I, they are doing the right thing where you see their Secretary of Defense, General Austin, has phoned in, has gone to Brussels and said, we're with you. Article 5 is absolute. An attack on one is an attack on all. Just like when New York City was attacked on 9-11, they all took it as an attack on them and they stood by us. It shows the value of fighting with allies. It is hard fighting with allies, but you can see it's absolutely working. Um, and it was very interesting, Jim, going to your China question, that the first summit that President Biden took part in, uh, this is where the, the heads of state talked, it was Japan, Australia, and India, what we call the Quad with the United States. And you can tell that this is very worrisome to an authoritarian government in Beijing because they immediately began talking about how the Quad is a failure. Well, since they, we had just started the talk at that level, nothing is more indicative of the concern they have of those four democracies getting together. And so is he on the right track? I believe he is. I personally got over enjoying uh, public humiliation by second grade, and it's back to working with our allies or as Condoleezza Rice used to put it to us when we were brand new Brigadier Generals, she would wave her finger at us, and I think it was 27 inches long, and she would say, and, and for you young generals, she was the national security advisor, I want you to remember, we do things with our allies, not to our allies. Yes, we're going in the right direction. We, we burned a lot of bridges, we scared a lot of people, we worried a lot of people, and it's going to take time to regain the trust, but yes, they're on the right, right path. How do we have our allies believe that they can feel confident that we're going to follow the, the plane line that we're on now when we have another election in three and a half years? Well, remember that uh, during the Cold War, we had Republicans and Democrat uh, administrations, but they stuck with, the, uh, stuck with the strategy. The value of a strategy is it's also a... Uh, a uh, a way to kind of limit your appetite. It says what you stand for, it says what you won't stand for. And if it's put together with input in the Pacific from the Quad and other like-minded nations, if it's put together with input from NATO, 
you start building the trust. But the bottom line is uh, trust is the coin of the realm. And if you say you're going to do something, then you have to do it. That's the bottom line. You can't say you're going to bomb Assad if he uses chemical weapons and then not do it and not have people all around the world recalibrate. You can't tell NATO that, well, maybe we're with you, maybe we're not on Article 5, that an attack on one is an attack on all. And that's going to re uh, resonate around the world. You've got to give your word for things. You've got to know where you stand. More importantly, you have to know what you will not stand for. And then you bring in three people, allies, allies, and allies. We got 30 seconds for me to ask you, sir, how, how do you feel about the Abraham Accords? The Abraham Accords are, are lens changing, nearly revolutionary. Let me give you a number. I always like quantifying issues, at least at the beginning. After the Abraham Accords were signed with the United Arab Emirates, uh, recognized Israel and said they had a right to exist. Uh, and that was totally due, a lot of people want credit for it. It was totally due to the political courage and the strategic vision of the crown prince of the United Arab Emirates. That's who did it. And he's been trying to do it for a long time. He did it. And during Hanukkah, the Jewish holiday at the tail end of last year, there were over 100,000 Israeli tourists in the United Arab Emirates. 100,000 Israeli tourists can't all be wrong. They can't all be stupid. This is lens changing. This is heartening. And to go back to the earlier question about how much money we spend on defense, now if we work with those allies, Arab and Israeli, we can probably reduce our military commitment to the Middle East without creating the conditions for Iran to start feeling brave again and go off and start killing more people. Well, so, it's not always easy to end a program when we talk about the Middle East on an optimistic note. General Jim Mattis, you've done it. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for really being here to honor Maria and all the support that you have provided to our World Affairs Council and others around the country. Oh, the